Hey, you're listening to Yo, This Can't Be Life, the podcast that aims to educate and inform Black women on how to take better care of their physical, mental, and financial health. I'm your host, Bree Montgomery, and I'm inviting you to join me as I interview resident experts to find out the cheat codes to living your best life. The information provided is intended to be general advice and should not be considered medical advice. For that, please consult your medical professional. This week, we're doing our part to get the word out for Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. We're talking about how to prevent the cancer, how it forms, and what to do if you have abnormal cells. In the guest chair, we have Dr. Mare M. Bay, who is an OBGYN in New York City. Her passion for women's health began in medical school and was further solidified during residency, where she noticed that many of our patients had limited exposure to basic information about their health. Her goal is to use her platform to reach a wider audience and provide them with easy to understand, concise, and evidence-based information on various health topics. And with that, let's get into the show. At this time, I'd like to welcome Mayor Mbe to the show. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes. So I am an OBGYN. I am practicing in New York City in Manhattan and Brooklyn. I got into women's health in medical school. I actually originally did not want to do OBGYN, but did the rotation and fell in love with it. And my focus now as an attending is on getting better as a minimally invasive surgeon, issues with people of color in medicine and issues with access and things like that. And I try to use my social media platform to educate women on things that they might not know about, things that are a little bit lesser known and things like that. Okay, awesome. So as you know, it's Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. So I kind of wanted to make sure people understand what that was and how, you know, it comes to be. So what is cervical cancer? So cervical cancer is cancer of the cervix. The cervix is this thick muscular tube that's kind of the connection between the top of the vagina and the uterus or the womb where pregnancies are held. I like to use the analogy of a light bulb with my patients. It's kind of the shape of a light bulb. If you imagine that the actual light bulb itself, the clear part is the uterus, and then the silver portion is the cervix, that's kind of how it fits in in terms of what the cervix is. So it's not the whole uterus, but it's just that entry portion. And cervical cancer is a very slow growing cancer, thankfully, but it's a cancer of just that portion of the uterus. And the pap smear is actually what we use to test for any kind of cancer cells on the cervix. Okay. And I know there's some debate going back and forth, but how often should we be tested and what is the test? Right. So there's actually two parts to the pap test. So there's the pap smear itself, which is the actual scraping of the cells, or I I should say, it's the pathologist's idea of what the cells on your cervix look like under a microscope. And then the HPV test or human papillomavirus, which is a test to check to see if there's any HPV within any of those cells. For people who are under the age of 30, so from age 21 to 29, we recommend the national guidelines now is to do a pap smear alone every three years. And then over the age of 30 until age 65, you're supposed to do them at least every five years. 
Now, some patients prefer to do it once a year because that's what it's always been, and I think that's totally fine. With certain patients who do end up with abnormal pap smears, we tend to do the uh, repeat testing a lot sooner than that three or five years. Okay. And are there any other groups, like say, if you've had some different kind of history or Mm -hmm. if you're immunocompromised, is there anything different those groups would do? There actually isn't. We used to recommend earlier testing. So we'd start pap smears at age 21 for everyone. We used to recommend earlier testing for patients with HIV. If they are controlled, we don't necessarily have to do that. If it's a new diagnosis, we do do a pap smear at that point. But if someone is immunocompromised but is well-controlled in terms of whatever has caused that immunocompromised state, they don't necessarily have to do the testing more frequently or differently. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as far as symptoms, are there any symptoms that someone would notice or is it just something we'd have to see in a test? It depends. So some patients will have symptoms. Most patients will not with early stage cervical cancer. The most common thing we do see once it progresses a little bit is going to be watery vaginal discharge, which is not helpful because it looks a lot like normal discharge, but most patients that I've seen who've had that symptom, the smell was different for them. And that was what kind of tipped them off. And then bleeding after sex or spotting between periods is another two big ones. And then pain during sex, that seems to be getting worse. Okay. So let's get into causes. Mm -hmm. How is cervical cancer caused? There's a lot of things that can go into at least contributing to it. But the cause of any cancer is just cells, abnormal cells that grow out of control. In the case of cervical cancer, HPV is probably the biggest risk factor just because of how HPV works. About 70% of cervical cancer cases are associated with HPV and specifically HPV 16 and 18 which are two of the strains that are included in the vaccines. The viruses have two proteins inside of them that actually increase the risk of cells of the cervix becoming cancerous by turning off the genes in those cells that would normally tell the cell that, hey, something is wrong with how you're operating. You should, if you remember from middle school, apoptosis, the cell kind of sacrifices itself once it realizes that something is wrong. But in the case of an HPV-infected cell, those cells don't have that shutoff mechanism anymore, so they continue to grow and multiply and eventually can lead to cancer. So HPV is probably the biggest cause because it's just so common. Most patients will have HPV at some point in their life, but there are some other things that actually increase your risk on top of the HPV or even without the HPV. And the biggest one, and the one that I harp on all my patients about, is smoking because it's something that you can prevent or stop if you're already a smoker. It actually doubles your risk of cervical cancer if you have HPV. So it's a big deal. And based on the research we've seen, tobacco byproducts actually make it down into the cervical mucus, and that's how it affects those cells. And so damage, it does damage to the, the DNA of those cells. And our thought is that it contributes to that development of cervical cancer. And it also just makes your immune system less effective. So especially in patients who are immunocompromised, that's another thing that can definitely affect your ability to fight off HPV if you were to have it. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's crazy how that makes it into that area. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, I would think totally separate. Exactly. 
Exactly. And patients are always surprised and like, no, this smoking affects your whole body, especially if you've been doing it for a long time. Interesting. Okay. All right. So I think you mentioned that vaccine a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So there's a couple different vaccines out now, but Bigardus still is still kind of the the main one. That's the big dog just because it's been around the longest and covers quite a few of the HPV strains. I mentioned 16 and 18. Those are the two that contribute to the vast majority of cervical cancers that we see. But there are a couple other ones and a couple other HPVs that actually induce warts or genital warts. And the vaccine protects against all of those strains. The thing that I always tell patients, because you can get the vaccine and get HPV later, is that the vaccine protects against that handful of HPVs, the ones that we really worry about that cause either cervical cancer or genital warts. But there are over 100 different strains of HPV. Those other ones are not high risk to us um, because they're just not as associated with cervical cancer or the warts. So you can still get HPV after you've had the vaccine but it's not necessarily any of the high-risk HPVs, and that's what we're trying to prevent. Okay, all right, Mm -hmm. I see. For the vaccine, I think there is an age group. Yes. How how long do you have a window for getting that? So it actually was just recently approved to go up until age 45, so more patients can get it now. It was originally approved up until age 26, and the recommendation is if you have children to try and get them vaccinated between ages 9 and 12, and that's boys and girls, because boys obviously can also get HPV and spread it, even if they don't have any symptoms. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... The effects of cervical cancer, what Mm -hmm. parts of the body does that affect? So the good thing about cervical cancer is it's very slow growing. So it takes several years for you to go from one abnormal pap smear, I should say a mild abnormal pap smear, to actual cervical cancer. It usually takes almost a decade. Oh. So that so that's why we we were able to spread out the pap smear testing because it's such a slow cancer. And it tends to really stay in the cervix. When it is given the chance to just kind of go wild and, you know, for patients who don't see anybody and don't ever get any kind of screening, which is about half of patients, it does go beyond the cervix, either up into the uterus or out to the sides into what we call the parametria, which is the tissues on the sides of the cervix. The cervix sits right between the bladder and the rectum. And kind of worst case scenario is having a cervical cancer that spreads far enough out to reach the bladder, rectum, or any spaces outside of the pelvis, because it can do that. But again, that takes many years to get to. And so that's why getting your screening is so important, because if we catch it early, a lot of times we can get that under control. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a decade... That's crazy because in anticipation of this interview, I've kind of been reading up on the studies and things like that. And I found that Black women are more than one and a half times likely to die from cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's just troubling to hear that it would even take a decade for it to get to a really bad state. Mm-hmm. So do we feel like the problem is more so in the initial screening, not having access to health care or? I think it's a combination of things. It's definitely that. The first kind of roadblock is access to care. The other roadblock is just knowing that you even need the pap smear or that what exactly does the pap smear do. And that's true for even patients who come into the office. A lot of times they don't recognize 
exactly what the pap test does. And so it's important for us to be making sure that people are aware of why this is such an important test and why we need to make sure to actually follow up if follow up is needed in between those three to five years. The other issue is that because Black patients have dealt with a very they have a strong distrust for the medical system here in America. And that makes sense, (laughs) given the history. If you look at any accurate history textbook, there's a lot of reasons why Black people would not trust a medical provider here telling them that they need to do something. But getting more Black people into the medical healthcare space is going to help with that. Getting more faces that look like you and kind of understand and can speak to that is going to be very important. And then the other reason is because a lot of times because of that access to healthcare barrier, Black patients are coming in with a further stage in terms of their diagnosis. So I might see, and I saw this in residency quite a bit because we took care of a lot of cervical cancer patients, you'd see a lot of white women who are coming in a little bit earlier because they went and got the screening versus a lot of Black women who had not had the access or didn't have the time or whatever it was, and their diagnosis is a later stage. And of course, with any cancer, a later stage is harder for us to take care of and put you into remission from. So it's a lot of different steps along the way that unfortunately are a barrier to Black women. And so part of what I try to do is focus my education on social media to Black women and try to get that information out there to patients. Oh, thanks. Because I I feel like it's going to have to be a community approach. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it's going to take everybody at every level. Right. So say you go to the doctor and they see an issue earlier with the pap smear. What can somebody expect as far as the next step if they've gotten an irregular pap smear and it's one of those numbers of strains that causes cervical cancer? So the vast majority of HPVs, even the high-risk ones, most healthy people can actually clear on their own. It does take a little bit of time. Some patients, it'll take six months. Some patients, it'll take two plus years. But a lot of times, we don't actually have to do any procedures on the cervix and your body will clear it on its own. What we're trying to do when we follow patients up a little more closely after an abnormal pap is to catch the people where the HPV doesn't go away like it should or where the pap smear continues to get worse. And the next step from the pap smear is what we call a colposcopy. Sounds a lot like colonoscopy, but it is not the same thing. We take a look at the cervix, very similar to a pap smear, but we use a colposcope, which is basically a large microscope, so that we can see the cervix better and actually see the surface abnormalities and take small biopsies of it. And that gives us a very definitive diagnosis. And based on that, we decide, does this patient require any kind of procedure? Do we need to just continue to watch because it's something mild? Or is it something where we actually recommend surgery? Okay. All right. You cleared it. Can you get it again? And is it something you make antibodies for? You do run the risk of getting HPV again. As I mentioned before, there's like over a hundred different strains of HPV. Right, right. And so basically with any new partner, you always have the risk that they might have HPV and you might get it from them. But if you have the vaccine against the high-risk ones and the warts ones, then you should have antibodies against those strains so that even if that person had that, you wouldn't have to worry about any kind of actual lasting infection. But it is something that patients get very upset about when they've 
cleared an HPV and then another HPV pops up. And it's unfortunately, there's just so much HPV in the community and it's not very symptomatic, especially for men. So it's impossible for you or even sometimes your partner to know because a lot of times men don't get tested for HPV. And so they, they might not even know even if they got their STD testing. So that's why it's so important to use protection with any new partners and by protection, I mean some sort of condom, whether it's a female or male condom, just a barrier method because that's the only way we really have to prevent HPV. And even that, unfortunately, is not 100% because HPV, since it's warts, can also just be transferred skin to skin. So it's one of those things where we're like, we, we can't really get rid of it, but we have the means to at least equip you with everything you need to kind of support you as your body clears it. Okay. So now you've gotten a screening, you've cleared it, and we know now that you know, condoms can help prevent. Unfortunately, they can't totally mm. prevent, which is kind of wonky. So <laughs> I I hate that kind of thing. It's like, I don't disagree. I, it's like, I, I want a hundred percent solution and there is none. And right. I, I mean, but you're right. That's exactly why it's so prevalent. And mm-hmm. like you said, most people are going to get it. Right. So is there a time that you stop getting the screenings or like how long should you continue to get the screenings? Typically for someone who's had normal PAPs most of their life, you're going to stop at age 65. That's the recommendation. If you've had any abnormal PAP smears within a certain time from that age, we'll typically recommend continuing PAP smears for a little bit longer. And then if you've had a hysterectomy, where they remove the cervix, then we don't do pap smears if the hysterectomy was for something not related to abnormal cells. So if it was for fibroids or heavy periods or something else, we don't have to do pap smears once that cervix is gone. But if it was for cervical cancer, if it was for a high-grade abnormal pap smear, even if it wasn't cancer, we typically do repeat paps afterwards for up to 20 years to make sure because there can be some small cervical cells up at the top of the vagina after that surgery. Okay, dang. You get rid of the whole thing and you can still have problems. And again, that's why this the pap is really our best defense. It's such an archaic test, but it's it does the job and it gives us the information that we need. So Right, right. Important. So definitely do not skip this. Right. <laughs> okay. And the good thing is it's a short test. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, if it's a short test, it shouldn't be painful. So Right. And it's something that you start young, so it's kind of like routine exactly. if you have access and everything mm-hmm. like that. So that is just like the biggest thing, it seems like. Right. Making sure that you keep getting tested and, you know, I guess us all as a community trying to do is what we can to make sure that everybody knows this exactly. and work on ways to get everybody tested. Right. So I know I hear about Planned Parenthood. Are there any other kind of resources that you know about for people who do have, say, insurance or low income and that's their barrier? 
Yeah. So the best resource, because every location is going to be a little different, is going to be the Department of Health, your local Department of Health. Because okay. they, they actually have a good bit of information about what local services are provided. So depending on where you are, there's at least always a health department and they can at least plug you in for something that's local for you. Because PAPs are cheap, so it's not like they're an expensive test, thankfully. So it's an easier thing for a lot of communities to provide on a either discounted or free basis. And there are a good number of free clinics throughout the U.S., especially in urban settings, that provide free PAP smears and free PAP tests. Okay. Thank you for that. And are, are there any other resources, like if we just wanted to find more information? Yeah. The two that are probably the easiest for non-medical people that, that I found and what I use for my patients is going to be the American Cancer Society. Their website actually has some very good information about cervical cancer, the risk factors, what to expect, the staging, all of that stuff. And then the ACOG website, which is the American College of OBGYNs, the official website, they have an, a frequently asked questions page for patients that goes over all sorts of topics. And cervical cancer is one of them. They'll go through a lot of the stuff we talked about today and even more information. Okay, great. So I know you mentioned that you were doing your own kind of awareness on this and other things on your social media. How can we find that? Yeah, so I am sweat and scalpels on all um, social media. I use probably Instagram the most. That's where most of my education is focused on. And that's probably the easiest way to find me and to kind of get information. I have a lot of different highlights on there on different topics, including cervical cancer. And I'll probably continue to add to that as I move forward. All right. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we let go? Well, just in terms of prevention, the biggest things are still going to be condoms, getting your pap smear, getting the HPV vaccine if you're a candidate for it, and then just taking and not smoking and then taking your follow-up seriously. So if we're saying, please come back in six months for repeat pap smear or one year or something a little sooner, it's because we want to make sure that you're taken care of. And we just want to make sure that we're catching anything that might pop up before it becomes something we can't take care of. All right. Thank you so much for joining me on this show. I think this was very educational. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was fun. All right. I hope you guys were able to learn something from that interview. Although I had a good handle on things, I was surprised to find out that they increased the age of the vaccine. And that's really great news for people who were beyond the eligible age when it first was introduced. I also had no idea the effects of tobacco usage could be found in the cervix. That's crazy to me. Again, if you'd like to keep in touch with Dr. Mbe, she can be found at Sweat and Scapples on Instagram. If you'd like to keep in touch with us, we're at Yo This Can't Be Life on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a Twitter page. Of course, you can listen to us on all the major platforms, including Apple, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. Until next time.